0: One of the reasons we did these rules of growth is to help executives really calibrate what they should expect and what the norms would be. So let me put it this way, the probability of growing more than 5% a year is 2%, so 1 in 50 if your core business is growing slowly, but it's 41% if your core business is growing quickly, so i.e. it's a, a 20x probability improvement from having a fast growing core. Now that's not to be fatalistic because some businesses don't have a fast call, but what it says is, okay, if that's the case, what's it going to
1: take for me to do a one in 50? From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Chris Bradley, a senior partner based in our Sydney office and a director of the McKinsey Global Institute. Our topic today is growth, or more specifically, the 10 rules of growth which is also the title of one of our most popular recent articles. We share a link to the article in the show notes. Chris is joined by one of his co-authors, Rebecca Dougherty, who leads our work on growth and innovation. Today, we'll discuss how executing on these growth strategies can lead to outperforming shareholder returns. Rebecca, thanks for being here.
2: Great to be here. Thanks for hosting us.
1: Chris, thanks so much for joining us all the way from Australia. Thank you, Sean. I'm excited. Let's get into it. Awesome. Well, to kick us off, why don't we just talk a little bit about what the spark was for this research? Why did you pursue it and, and why now?
0: Well, it's deep in the DNA of our strategy practice to kind of look for the empirical rules of growth. And this started, you know, over 10 years ago with Granularity of Growth, which was our best-selling book. And I guess we just wanted to continue that tradition, but maybe observing that growth was getting harder. And the other trigger was we came across better data that allowed us to carve the revenue of a lot of companies up quite precisely into 130 industries. And that gave us probably one of the best ways we've ever had of seeing through the growth of a company between the effects of its industry momentum and then the additional things the firm did on top. And so that kind of, that new set of data, as it often does, kind of sparked a fresh
1: set of questions for us. And what was the time frame that you looked at in terms of the results and around growth here?
0: Well, we wanted to look at a long enough time period that you'd correct for any blips. So it was 10 years, but the way we want to do that is also adjusting for any variance around the start and the end point. So we took an you know an, your average from 2005 to 09 and then compared it to your average from 2015 to 19 and compared the the growth rate between. So as much as possible, we're always trying to see through short-term fluctuations and get to what's really the long-run trend rate of growth of a company.
1: Thanks, Chris. Given right now that most CEOs are dealing with some pretty extreme volatility in in many cases and have been for a little while, what makes growth such a top priority now? Why'd you choose to, to study it now aside from the fact that you had some access to amazing data?
2: So, what's interesting is in other research that we've done, what we actually found is that those that pursue growth in a downturn and early recovery actually outperform their peers over the long run. What you actually find is these companies that have the dry powder and have the capacity to grow, right, and really stick to their strategy, they essentially get so far ahead of their peers during this time period that their peers can't even catch up. We're talking having excess TRS that's 10x higher than their peers in the actual downturn period.
1: TRS being?
2: Oh, excess uh, total return to shareholders. And what, what you really see these players do is that they're really set on, they, they have a long-term strategy and they have a long-term aspiration. And yes, the context is changing. Right. And so, what that means is within resource allocation, they may pull back from certain pieces, you know, like more administrative costs, if you will. But then they'll actually double down and reinvest into the areas that matter, whether that be capabilities on digital or marketing sales, or that be a new growth market, or maybe it's actually that MA target, right, in a new area that suddenly is affordable now. Right. So, there's actually a lot of flexibility for those who are consistent with their strategy and have the financial flexibility to really lean in and make things happen.
0: There's a quote going around our firm at the moment that we're finding inspirational by Ayrton Centre, which is you can't overtake 15 cars in sunny weather, but you can when it's raining. And so there's this idea that these are the times when the pecking order of industries change and it's very, it's very, very
1: important. So, Heavy volatility is a time when you can really separate the outperformers from the underperformers. You also, I understand, included the global financial crisis in the time series that you looked at. Can you just talk a little bit about some of the things that made growth challenging during that period, and do they apply today?
0: In terms of the global financial crisis, the interesting thing for this analysis is not so much the short-term effects of that, because over a very long period of time, ups and downs, if you survive them, are not that definitive, like the you know, the, the march of, of growth goes forward. But it's more that actually the global financial crisis represents a time where overall, the growth rates of companies slowed down. So the prior 10 years was a much faster time of growth than the one after for your average large company. And that's despite the fact that the balance sheet of these companies kept growing at a fast rate. So we've had a a situation since the global financial crisis where the balance sheet of companies is growing faster than the top line and we're seeing therefore suppression of returns now there's a whole bunch of reasons why we might have had a secular slowing of corporate growth my sense is a lot of it's to do with the transition and the disruption of industries that causes a lot of prior incumbents to find it harder to, to grow. And then the companies that do achieve super growth are kind of more doing so in a bit of a winner-take-all way. So it's 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 certainly uh, as the march of digitization, globalization, and now the race to net zero is on, we're seeing those disruptive forces really play
1: out. Thanks so much, Chris. Re- Rebecca, anything you want to add to that?
2: Going on one thread of your question around, you know, are the learnings from the financial crisis applicable in today's time, right? It's, it's really interesting right now, um, you know, Interesting is perhaps a loaded word, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And, you know, we've all already been through a couple of years of a pandemic that hit some industries very, very hard. Honestly, probably provide tailwinds for others. Right. And we're seeing a bit of a correction for that now. And so, you know, while no two downturns are the same, I definitely think there are lessons we can learn around using this as a time to really accelerate that are very applicable. But I think also being mindful of the fact that the dynamic is a little bit different this time and the uncertainty is also different. And so thinking through the nuances of that as you craft your strategy and maybe where you lean into the 10 rules might look a little bit different.
1: All right, Chris, Rebecca, thank you. I I guess the, the, the big question that we should start out with is, why is growth so important? Is, is it truly you know, a requirement for outperformance? Growth on one hand
0: is a sure sign that a company's doing something right, isn't it? And so it's no surprise that revenue growth really over the long term is a critical driver of corporate outperformance. In fact, it's almost impossible to outperform in shareholder returns over the long term without being a good grower. An extra five points of revenue per year gets you three to four more points of shareholder returns. That's kind of the rule. So if you want to maximize the value of your company, you have to figure out a way to grow. And that's what our 10 rules get at. Hey, what's the science of that? What's the physics of it? What's the engineering of what does a good, robust growth plan that's well calibrated and not just a dream? What does it look like?
2: The other point that's also really important around growth is profitable growth. What we've also found is when, you know, growth for growth's sake is not that Fruitful per se, but really growing for profitability and growing profitably and faster than your peers, more profitably than your peers, is where you really see the shareholder returns start to increase.
1: So, would you say these ten rules for growth are not just growth, but they're ten rules for profitable growth?
0: That's that's right, Sean. Because in fact, the dependent variable we were testing here was what led to higher total shareholder return outperformance. Absolutely. And what Rebecca just said is actually a great segue into our first rule of growth, which is competitive advantage first. And oftentimes companies think that you have to, growth is sacrificial or, you know, that we've got to somehow endure long periods of low profit to, to have growth. It's actually not true. The, the order of it is not growth, then profit. It's actually usually high return and then growth companies that begin with their return on capital being higher than their cost of capital actually go on subsequently to grow at double the rate that companies that didn't. So there's a lot going on there, but what it does point to a big idea, which is the best rule of growth is to have a terrific business that's powerful and makes great returns and then scale it. And that, that kind of flies in the face of maybe some traditional logic, which is more a build it and they will come kind of model. The actual norm for most companies is be great first.
1: How about that second one? Uh, It's all about the trend. Rebecca, do you want to take that one?
2: So this also even ties back to some of our earlier thinking around, you know, when your business is going well, or when you're trying to turn around your business, how much of it is tied to moves that you can make versus, you know, what's going on in your industry and the broader environment. And the idea around this one about the trend being your friend is, are you positioning yourself in areas where there are tailwinds? Right. So an example might be, hey, in the downturn, maybe your your sector is struggling a little bit, but you, there's an adjacent sector that is experiencing a bit of growth. Right. If we take the most recent, you know, COVID and going virtual, is there something you can do to really hit the consumer while they're at home? And so are you positioning yourself in an area that is poised for growth and poised to do well? Or are you you know, fighting headwinds? And if you combine this with the first rule, you know, what you would say is, hey, if you're in a place where you're following the trend and you have a competitive advantage that helps you be successful, that's the beginning of a formula that can really help you uh, succeed.
1: And what happens if the trend is not your friend? What do you do then?
2: We would say there are probably subsectors where the trend can still be your friend. A segment that maybe is going not the way that you would like there's still this idea of you can still have a pocket of outperformance based on your competitive advantage in it. And we would say, look more broadly at your growth pathways. What are areas that you could go into that were positioning better with the trend? So an example is if you think about oil and gas, if you think about the move um, toward ESG, in many ways, some of these industries or some of these players are maybe not positioned the best, but some of them are looking at areas where they can get ahead in, in this rate, uh, race to net zero whether within their core business or looking at more sustainable pathways.
1: Thanks Rebecca. There's another point that you make in the in the third rule is is this notion of you you actually also need to outgrow your peers. Chris, can you talk a little bit about that one?
0: Sure can. It's a you know, it's another riff on the idea that growth is about excellence. While it's true that it's great to be in a fast-growing industry, and if you're not, absolutely you have to go much harder, you have to make bigger moves, you have to make bigger pivots, That that's clear. And when, when it comes down to a choice, if you want to be an outperformer in a slower industry or an underperformer in a faster industry, I can tell you every single time you'll do much, much better being an outperformer in a slower industry. So while it's good to follow the trend, the rule of excellence kind of comes first. Like if you if you go, hey, I'm going to go into this fast growing market, but you can't keep up with market share, you're not as good as everyone else, you're going to destroy a ton of value. Whereas if you can find a, a winning formula in a way of gaining market share and outperforming in your market, that
1: tends to be rewarded. You know, another point that you talk about in the article is the importance of looking at your core industry and really focusing on growth there. I think you call it turbocharging your core. Can you? Take us through how one does that, Rebecca.
2: Yeah, so if we even just look at the research, right, what you find is 80% of a company's growth varies a bit by industry, uh, but in general, about 80% of a company's growth comes from the core, right? And so this really, really just accentuates the need to do well in your core business. And and they can look a little bit different depending where you are on the S-curve, right? If you're a little bit earlier in your S-curve, you're really kind of turbocharging your core well beyond 80% is your primary focus, right? If you're near the top of the S curve and you're saying, well, you know, there's only, I'm squeezing whatever I can out of my core to Chris's point of really outperforming, right? In the area that you're in. But I also need to start, look at other sources, but this is really kind of what you know best and is where your competitive advantage is. And so really nailing that and optimizing it and even growing your definition of core can really help
0: one of the reasons we did these rules of growth is to help executives really calibrate what they should expect and what the norms would be. So let me put it this way. The probability of growing more than 5% a year is 2%, so 1 in 50 if your core business is growing slowly, but it's 41% if your core business is growing quickly, so i.e. it's a, a 20x probability improvement from having a fast-growing core. But that just goes back to what Rebecca's saying, is that the core is the largest part of growth and how the core goes just mathematically is very determinative. Now, that's not to be fatalistic because some businesses don't have a fast core, but what it says is, okay, if that's the case, what's it going to take for me to do a one in 50? What's my really big thing that I can do if my core isn't growing quickly to make that big jump into a new area? So this isn't designed to be a uh, magic potion or kind of wishful thinking. It's designed to just drive a level of calibration around setting your growth goals that allows
1: you to f- match the ends to the means. Thanks, Chris. We just went through the fourth rule for growth. These are in order. Is Was there a reason to the order when you set the 10?
0: The order of the rules was more driven by a logical progression, like how you got to start with a uh, excellence in your business outperformance and, and, and high returns and then and then move on from there. So but it's not so much designed as a ordered recipe.
2: What we did find is if you are a company that only mastered zero to one of the rules, both your growth and your excess shareholder return were likely negative. The median company there was negative. Versus if you mastered eight to eight plus of the rules, you were looking at median growth of almost 7% and median excess total shareholder returns of almost 6%. And what we did find that is there was a linear relationship. So the more rules you mastered, the higher growth you would have on balance as well as higher shareholder return.
1: How tough is it to hit all 10 in your uh, in your sample set, did you see any companies that were able to to meet all ten? Well, less than ten percent of companies beat more than six,
2: and less than one percent beat more than eight.
0: So it's hard to do. It's hard to do, but the good news in terms of Rebecca's you know linear improvement is that by the time you're f- passing four or five rules, which is actually not completely unattainable then you're in really positive territory for growth outperformance and for TRS outperformance. And as we said, you won't always need to kind of go for every single rule because, for example, if your core is absolutely pumping and your local market's growing quickly, you don't really need to or you shouldn't go off and explore other types of growth. You should be dry, you know, harvesting as hard as you can. Go for it.
1: So your next rule for growth is looking beyond your core. Rebecca, can you talk to us a little bit about how do you best nurture growth in adjacent areas?
2: And this is really the flip side to what we were saying with, you know, 80% of your growth coming from your core. That means 20% comes from outside of it, which is a substantial amount. And this is where rule number one also comes back into play. You know, you asked if there is really an order to the rules and this really goes back to, you know, having your competitive advantage and being able to build on that really being key really for all these rules. And so what we find is companies that go into adjacencies, whether organically in or inorganically, really build on something that they are good at and they really have a right to play in this new market. To Chris's earlier point, could be the fastest growing market and everyone knows what these are. But if you go in and you really have no business being in there, you know, that, that's not going to be beneficial to your company versus if you're thoughtful about, you know, maybe being finding the niche area that you can be really good in or finding a good strategy to enter an area where you can really bring something to the table that will often, you know, really breed success.
1: How do you do that effectively? How do you get into those adjacent business areas?
0: Yeah. So about 15% of companies in our sample made a really big play for growing outside the core. So that became more than 20% of their company. And they did outperform on average by about 1.5 points. So so it's it's growing beyond the core is a good thing. Now, it just turns out that, you know, going back to the other one, if if your core is growing slowly, you have to go even harder outside the core to get that outperformance.
1: There's another one that's got a, a really uh, colorful description. Be a local hero. Commit to winning on the home front. My favorite, Mark Knopfler riff. what does that mean and, and how does that differ from, you know, focusing and turbocharging your core?
2: We've talked about growth in terms of how to think about segments and industries and how to think about your core and going to adjacencies. The other axis we might think about is geography. And so your core has the elements of, are you in the right segment? But it also has, are you in your local geography and are you winning in your local geography? And so in our research, we also found that only one in five companies that have below median growth rates in their local region can even manage to outgrow their peers. What this translates to is you need to be good in your local geography. And the exceptions might be, for example, in your slower growing region like Japan, you need to go outside your core local geography to really find more growth. But generally speaking, you know, you need to win kind of where you know and then expand out from there.
1: And I, I guess, um, you know, one, one aspect of that is that if you don't have a winning business model at home, it oftentimes is pretty tough to then export that somewhere else, right? Um, I, on that point, your next rule is go global if you can beat local. So this is all about international or out of country expansion. Do you see any differences between, you know, developed economies and developing economies on that on that front?
0: A, a little bit. I mean, the, the the critical thing is to understand is that fifty percent of growth came from outside local markets. So it really really matters. Now, the the whole point is that going international is actually a pretty good thing if you can do it and again it's a reflection of excellence if you can grow internationally it says something about yourself so that that gets you about 2 points more TSR but that kind of gets undone if you're not doing well in your local market so you actually go backwards if you if you're not doing well in your local market and i think again what it says is if you've if you're expanding and it's a internationally and it's capital intensive and it's a hard slog it's probably gonna be much less profitable than if you've actually just got a naturally really dynamite platform that you're exporting in, into other markets.
1: Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about M&A. Um, McKinsey's written a lot and published a lot on the importance of uh, a certain approach of M&A and it looks like that fits here in terms of your 10 rules of growth. Can you talk a little bit about programmatic M&A and, and the importance of that to uh, to driving growth?
2: Certainly, Sean. As you mentioned, we've done a lot as a firm on programmatic M&A and really the virtue um, of doing so. And maybe just for a quick definition of what that is, we think of programmatic M&A as making a series of acquisitions to support one business theme or one business strategy area. And so the idea around this is, you know, you may have one or two larger anchor acquisitions, but then you would do a couple of others as well to really build out The business. And the idea here is that you build the capabilities to both identify good acquisition targets as well as strong integration on the back end. And so you think of M&A as a capability in the same way that you think about sales and marketing as a capability, for example. And so what our research tells us time and time again is that companies that take a programmatic account approach, right, on balance tend to do better in the form of excess return to shareholders. What we did is we crossed this logic with growth and the the rules. And what we found, you know, one intuitively, those that do programmatic MA, right, do well on growth. But interestingly, I actually looked at the revenue growth rates of companies that do programmatic MA versus those that are organic or do a selective deal or of kind of a big shot one large deal. And what we found is that on balance, the companies that took a programmatic approach had a higher growth rate. So for example, a higher share of the companies were growing higher than 5%. And we saw that they had higher return to shareholders. So what I mean by that is if you take a programmatic approach, and you're growing greater than 5%, your excess return to shareholders over this 10 year period was over 5%. Versus, if you achieved this revenue growth of five percent, taking an organic strategy, the median company was only returning one point five percent. So it's really interesting to see, you know, not only the idea that programmatic M and A is important and you know underpins success, but also that the resulting growth rate, coupled with this strategy, was really viewed as successful by shareholders.
0: So the the, the bit of Sugar and Spice, we added this in analysis. I mean, we've known programmatic growth is an outperformance driver for a long time. It's that even when you correct for growth, if you consider a goal to say, hey, I want to grow it faster than 5%, and wow, if I can do that organically, that's really wonderful. It turns out if you grow faster than 5%, but you do it with programmatic acquisitions, it's still better from a shareholder return perspective than doing it organically. So um, even once you control for achieving high growth, programmatic is still a better way to do it. My, our sense is it's because it's actually a cheaper and faster way to achieve your growth goals and less risky than doing it organically.
1: And what role does divestiture play in this? I mean, sometimes you've got to free up that dry powder. I know you've got another uh, another role for growth here, which is this notion of it's okay to shrink to grow. Does that trade off necessarily against the programmatic MA? and how does that fit into the broader sort of M&A and divestiture strategy?
0: Well, if you can be a company that's a consistent grower, so you're always post solid growth, do that. It's your surest ticket to outperformance. But only 10% of companies manage to do that over a decade. And we're just talking about that year in, year out. But I can tell you the worst thing to do is to try and achieve your growth all in one big go. And you don't want to be a choppy grower always up and down. That's bad as well. But there actually is a formula that's somewhere in the sweet spot between that if you can't achieve year in year out growth, which not every business can, then actually there's a strategy called shrink to grow. That's actually not bad at all. And that's where over a 10 year period, you might have one or two quite major dips in your growth, which would represent large divestitures. But in the other years you grew. So this is like pruning back and then growing from there. 14% 14% of companies do that and they posted 4% outperformance in in total shareholder returns. And so that goes against the grain a little bit of this idea of like growth and scale are the same thing. They're actually not. Growth is, is much more about pruning back and growing from where you are more than continually amassing scale because then you'll just be an inconsistent grower and you don't want that.
1: And Chris, what does the pruning back do for the company that does it? Is it that they're freeing up dry powder to then go after programmatic?
0: Well, often they'll use carve-outs and they'll give it back to shareholders. I think what they're doing is kind of pulling some of the other rules back in, which is grow where you know, increase your similarity, and choose your where to play so that you've got the tailwinds tailwinds over time. So a great example of that is a, a, a company local here to Australia. They divested their one division, which was half of their revenue, and now they're worth more than they were before they divested it because instead of one company that had okay growth, they've created two value-creating companies. When we talk to CEOs, we say, hey, your objective is to create a company that grows. That's not the same thing as staying a really, really big company.
2: There's definitely the financial benefits and the ability to reinvest when you divest to grow, shrink to grow, if you will. Uh, But there's also really just the human capital as well as the management bandwidth that goes with that, right? So when we think about resource allocation, People's minds often go immediately to the money, but the human capital side of that is really important. So the calories that the senior management were spending thinking about this business and trying to manage it, you know, they can now spend on other areas of the business in the same way that you know, perhaps not just the senior management, but you have human capital at the other levels of the organization that can be redeployed to work on other priorities. And that's actually a huge part of the benefit as well.
1: A couple other questions that come to mind with these 10 uh, before we wrap. Do companies struggle with any one of these rules more than others?
0: I think it comes a bit down to, was it Tolstoy who said every unhappy family is unhappy in its own very unique way? I think it's very situation specific, Sean. And that's why we sometimes feel a bit brave going out with a piece that says 10 rules for growth as though we can kind of have some grand prescription of these things. It's meant to be a helpful set of calibrations for people, not a cookie cutter. That said, what we have found is that there are just a handful of combinations that seem to be more common and that seem to be winning, winning combinations. The first one is to have a great core business in a great local market and just execute it really well. Uh, we call that the you know the ultra focus. And so the, the the whole point about growth is if you've got it, go for it. The other one is when you've got a really healthy, fast growing core and you manage to internationalize it. It's actually common. It's one in five companies do that. It's a very successful formula. The third combination and the fourth combination are actually rarer and they're the harder one. So the first one is the mega champion in all directions, so where they grow both local and international and both core and non-core. But that, it's only 4% of companies, but some companies just have a special ability to drive growth in all directions. And then the final one, which is 3% of companies, are people who stay in their local markets, but they really, really do that non-core growth really well. So they diversify locally, but it's much less common.
1: Thank you. In your research, did you see any big differences between regions or industries as you looked at these 10 rules for growth? Rebecca?
2: There will be certain patterns that are industry specific. While Chris says, and the research tells us, right, the most common archetypes and the most common formulas are those that really are kind of being good in your core business at home, or taking your core business and exporting it internationally. If we look at companies that did go outside of their core, there are different themes by industry that are a little bit different, right? So banking is going more toward fintech. You have the consumer market that is consumer companies that are going more, probably leading on ESG, for example, and you have tech companies even software within that. For them, a five or ten percent growth rate is really not enough, right? And so it really is about outperforming your peers within your relevant market and what the standard for good looks like there.
0: The main thing, the, the the thing that was over this period of time, at least, was to be US focused. So either you're in the US or you're a European or a Japanese or a Chinese company growing into the US, going to China tended to not produce highly profitable or successful growth. And staying in Europe or staying in Japan only wasn't a great result, but successful international expanders, a lot of Japanese companies did that really well, but they did so out of necessity.
1: In, in your uh, work with clients and your conversations with clients about this research, what kind of reactions are you getting? What are they most excited about? Is there, a, is there one of the 10 rules that really resonates with them?
0: The first thing that resonates with clients is this challenge to them of where you're actually at on the growth curve. One conversation comes to mind, which which was a, a company that was in an industry where growth was really hard to come by. But what we were always able to find is peers in their same industry who were actually growing and cracking the code. And I think what it led to was a kind of a bigger conversation around, well, what would we have to do differently to kind of get to that right side of the curve? And even if that's only a moderate shift of growth, it can make a massive difference, two or three extra points. Chris, thanks so much.
1: This is a really fun conversation. Appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Pleasure. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us today. This was really fun.
2: Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Chris.
1: And thank you, everyone, for listening today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We've included a link to Chris and Rebecca's article, The 10 Rules of Growth, in the show notes. You can also find transcripts and easily explore our library of more than 120 previous podcasts on our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash I-T-S-R. Please let us and others know what you thought about our podcast by rating us on your podcast player. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, we encourage you to email us at inside the strategy room at McKinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive our latest insights automatically, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on McKinsey.com ITSR. Follow us on Twitter at MCKStrategy or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon Inside the Strategy Room.